0: is that i'm just i'm no longer accepting new information as an adult i'm
1: not tracy (laughs) i have really bad news for you (laughs) okay all right (laughs) willing and fable baby devastated to announce that we have a podcast (laughs) and i must consume information i'm so bummed to tell you (sighs) because either I give you new information and only one person is disappointed or Mm -hmm. I give no new information and lots of people are disappointed. One
0: person is thrilled because their brain doesn't have to work anymore.
1: That person is me. But you're my person so I value you higher which means we're now sliding towards like middle information.
0: (laughs) We're putting ourselves in a precarious situation. (laughs)
1: Hey, this podcast, it's a precarious situation. I'm Rowan Hall. And I'm Tracy Harrison. And this is Willing and Fable, the podcast that brings you original retellings and in-depth research on the history, mystery, and mythology that makes the world so fascinating. Each week, we research a
0: topic from history or mythology, and then we write an original story to go along with that topic. So, if you'd like to support the show, consider heading over to our website and checking out the many pages we have there, including... All of our recommendations, all the recommendations we have for you that we talk about on this podcast, we consolidate onto our recommendations page.
1: And you can also support the show by staying on the website and going over to our sources. You know, those academic papers that we read so that you don't have to because you don't want to. Right. Uh, Go over. Check them out. (laughs) Yeah, we
0: put a lot of work into it and they're fun for us to explore and we curate the best of the best for you, our dear listeners. best of the best from Wikipedia. (laughs) i love wikipedia i stand by wikipedia and i donate to wikipedia i just gave them a chunk of money Mm -hmm. because i owe them a lot (laughs) yes (laughs) (laughs) or you can support the show by going up to your favorite piece of artwork hanging up in your home and telling it what a wonderful job it's doing by beautifying your space
1: but no matter what you do we are happy to have you here with us today Okay, so at the risk of sounding too mysterious, the name of the game with today's episode is Is It Fun or Is It Poison? (laughs) At what point is it poison? It's like, I don't know, what else? Um, My presence? Poison in large doses.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Oh no, I'm not funny. What's fun in small doses and poison? You can be my antidote. (laughs) <laughs> that's the cutest thing anyone's ever said
1: honestly did I just fanfic like <laughs> write for us yeah that's the cutest
0: thing anyone's ever said I am poison but you're my antidote what the f- like hello I now I want to make fan art of like f- everything
1: I mean it's like super toxic if you chase it down too far not unlike it's kind of a poisonous relationship but it sounds great on paper it does it does it's good it's good she's good It's good. What can I say? It's good. (laughs) Hey, you know what else is good? Absinthe. Cool. That's our topic today. The Green Fairy. Yay! I am excited because absinthe
0: is always something that you love to touch on, more from a historical perspective. I always think of you and loving to, like, dive into what the Green Fairy is all about and absinthe and the history of absinthe and how it was started versus how it is today. Like, this is not a new conversation for us to have, and I'm very excited.
1: Oh, definitely No. Definitely no. La Fiverr is... (laughs) I could just pull her out at inappropriate moments when it's a non sequitur. Also, I think it's worth saying, neither Tracy nor I drink absinthe. This
0: is true. Yeah, we have a confession here for everyone
1: today. Tracy has an alcohol allergy, and I do not like black licorice. You really don't. The only person I know who likes black licorice, the only person, Casey who is guest host on the show. Kaylee likes absinthe, also a guest host.
0: Hey, all right. Two of our guest hosts
1: are representing our uh, absinthe fandom. So for anyone who is sitting there going, what the heck? Absinthe is famously known as the green liqueur that's made with wormwood and causes hallucinogenic effects that lead people to see the green fairy. If you've watched Baz Luhrmann's Moulin Rouge, you'll remember the scene with toulouse trek They see a mm-hmm. green fairy. If you don't know the context, it's a little weird.
0: I mean, if you're watching Baz Luhrmann's Moulin Rouge, I don't think at that point is where you decide. No, this is a strange film.
1: Fair, fair, fair. But here's the thing: number one, absinthe, known for being green, it can be white absinthe blanc or the classic absinthe vert and a lot of times the best absinthe is the least green that i
0: didn't know i thought the best and like most real absinthe was the most green
1: it's not a rule like the less color you get the better it's just sometimes really good absinthe is not particularly colorful also it's not a liqueur Because it's not traditionally bottled with added sugar, it's classified as a spirit. Oh. I didn't know that that was a rule. But spirit fits better, uh, also in terms of, like, yumminess of words. Mm -hmm. So I like it. It does not cause hallucinations. Okay, that's a big one to drop because that's its whole thing. Yeah. It just doesn't do hallucinations? Capitalism ruins the party again.
0: Ah. All right. I'm strapping in. Let's do it. Politics? A little bit of eugenics. Man, <laughs> the surprise eugenics, the way it just comes up when we're not expecting it. What?
1: Like, of course, you know, of course it's history, but sometimes. Okay. So I, I will say, I promise you there will be a Green Fairy, though, because we are a mythology podcast and okay, I picked this episode so I could write about a Green Fairy. Okay. So we begin at the beginning. Absinthe is a French name that comes from the Greek absinthion, but there are mentions of it back as far as ancient Egypt. It's typically made by soaking wormwood leaves, Artemisia absinthium, in wine. Well, hold on, wine. amazing scientific name. Artemisia absinthium. I think that's my next D&D character. There are a lot of good D&D character names in this and by that I mean at least two. <laughs> I can't wait. Artemisia absinthium would be a really good name for an alchemist. Yes. I was thinking the exact same thing. Yeah. Ooh. Ooh, I'm built. Okay, focus, Rowan. This beverage was used by the ancient Greeks to cure a variety of maladies because they developed it as a medicine. That's how it started. Mm -hmm. Uh, Considered the father of medicine, Hippocrates prescribed it for rheumatism, anemia, menstrual cramps. Pythagoras claimed it eased childbirth. Um my favorite for you specifically Trace, Pliny the Elder, my boy, described chariot race victors drinking absinthium to remind them that there is bitterness in glory. So, having emo boys drink absinthe goes back forever.
0: The idea that you make winners do something uncomfortable or you know, That they don't enjoy is so funny to me.
1: I like it. Because at
0: least as a loser, you're like, well, we don't have to deal with the gross stuff.
1: It's still booze, though. Like, how gross is it? You know, there's levels of gross. It's not like... It's true. At that point, you're probably actually learning to love the taste of it because you associate it with winning. With victory. Ooh, that's good. Mm Mm-hmm. In the 2nd century CE, physician Galen would prescribe it for stomach relaxation and swooning. Ooh. In 1597, the British herbalist John Gerard wrote, Wormwood voideth away the worms of the guts. What? I hope that's a euphemism. It's probably not. Nope. But then when the bubonic plague hit England during the 17th and 18th centuries, it was used to fumigate the homes of the infected. Hmm. If you've listened to our episode that discusses the plague, you'll know there's a lot of, like, trying to cover up plague with good smells mm-hmm. and then thinking that that is medicine or we helpful. We
0: love the miasma theory of medicine. It, it was so wrong, except the only thing that came out of it that was good was if it smelled bad, don't touch or eat it. So, like, not the worst advice in terms of how we've handled medicine.
1: It's really not bad advice.
0: It's just, you know... A good smelling thing won't heal you, but like yeah, don't eat garbage. <laughs> don't, don't shout, Trace. Sorry, sorry. I'll, I'll lower my voice for you.
1: <laughs> in all of these stories so far, it is used as medicine. It did not become popular as a beverage in the way we understand it as mm-hmm. a beverage until much later. And there are multiple versions of the legend of Absinthe's introduction to the wider world of drinkers. The argument being, did a man really discover it? Or was it a folk remedy beverage passed down a family through generations of women? Ooh, can I put my guess in? You can, but I unfortunately don't have a solid answer for you. That's okay. I think that it was probably passed
0: down through the women, because any time that's even remotely brought up as a possibility, the patriarchy likes to say no, and shuts it down and so i think that the fact that it's even hinted at gives a Mm -hmm. lot more credence to the possibility that it could have been what really was going on and it's obviously probably not one or the other but i do imagine it's likely that it was a folk thing that women had all the time that one man went ah i invented
1: this and just took it so tracy kind of wrote the story i'm just gonna (laughs) add in a couple of names and that's it basically (laughs) post french revolution thousands of loyalists fled to switzerland enter the retired physician dr pierre ordinaire ah second ttrpg character name that's the one yeah that's the one i actually texted it to spencer immediately after (laughs) i read it i was like you you hold on to that my friend Mm -hmm. that's his real name that's incredible provably his name amazing So while living in Cuvée, he created a, quote, new elixir with 15 herbs and grape spirit. Are you getting KFC vibes from it? (laughs) Famous 11 herbs and spices. Oh, 100%.
0: (laughs) Okay, good, good, good. Glad it's not just me.
1: So of course, wormwood is in there, but also numerous ingredients to make it more palatable to drink. That's a big part about absinthe. Mm. A lot of these herbs are going in here. They have some medicinal properties, but it's also like... God, it would be cool if this didn't taste awful. <laughs> mm-hmm. So among them is anise. Uh, it gets its classic green color from green anise. Oh. Licorice, okay. fennel, hyssop, barley, chamomile, spinach, what? And coriander. I bet the spinach helped with the green color a bit. Yeah, I fe- it feels like a cheat. If you don't like black licorice, as I said, you will not like absinthe. Uh, Unless you can just do it for the vibe, Uh, Mm. which I can occasionally just do it for the vibe. Um, I wouldn't recommend it.
0: I will happily hold a glass for the vibe. That's what I'll do.
1: So there's a bar that we all go to uh, in L.A. that does absinthe fountains, and I just go with my friends who like absinthe, Mm -hmm. and I order one and get to do all the fun, Mm -hmm. but it's their drink, See that's where I thrive
0: because I, you know, because as we talked about before, I can't drink, so I just I go to bars and breweries and stuff like that with my friends for the vibe, and the vibe only,
1: mocktails and vibes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so upon his death, Ordinaire willed the recipe and a large chunk of change to his housekeepers, mm-hmm. the Henriot sisters. I think I'm pronouncing that correctly, or these women were the women who originally developed it or it was their grandmother. It depends on who's telling the story. If you go by a 1769 Swiss newspaper, it was definitely the women.
0: Yeah. Oh, interesting. Even in 1769, they already are saying it was the women.
1: We love to see it. Yeah. Switzerland does pretty well often. So after he died, the women made small batches and marketed it as Dr. Ordinaire's absinthe. In about five years' time, maybe, Henri Louis Pronot, the father of the alcohol brand that still exists today, purchased the recipe. He opened a distillery in Cuvée, and then in 1805, to dodge taxes, he founded a bigger one just across the border in Pontilier, France. I mean,
0: if it works, I guess, good for you, bud. So he originally started it in were they switzerland in switzerland and then it went across the border in 1805 in france
1: yeah so people call cuvee switzerland the spiritual home of absinthe oh that makes sense that makes sense jesse hicks writes in the science history article the devil in a little green bottle a history of absinthe which is such a good article please read that one um quote in 1830 France conquered Algeria, beginning its expansion into North Africa. As local resistance grew, the French army sent reinforcements, amounting to 100,000 soldiers by 1840. The heat and bad water took their toll, with fever tearing through the ranks. The men received wormwood to quell fevers, prevent dysentery, and ward off insects. They took to spiking their wine with it, which cut the bitterness and provided an alcoholic punch. Returning to France, they brought with them a taste for the drink, dubbing it unver for its distinctive green color. And soon, civilians, eager to align themselves with their newly victorious empire, began asking for a green. End quote. So it was considered an anti-malaria medication. Hmm. No reason to think that it would work that way. No uh, as a modern person.
0: Right. I don't I think it's Quinine that helps with malaria, and I don't think there's quinine in it.
1: Yeah, Trace, you're absolutely right. So, to quote an NPR article called Elixirs Made to Fight Malaria Still Shine on the Modern Bar, quote, In the 1960s, Chairman Mao wanted a magic bullet to stop malaria among soldiers in North Vietnam. So, he enlisted top scientists to find a new malaria drug from herbs used in traditional Chinese medicine. It took 14 years and over 50 scientists, but finally, the scientists isolated a potent anti-malarial compound from sweet wormwood. It's called artemisinin, and we still use it today. But a note of caution, artemisinin isn't found in the European wormwood used in absinthe, so a drink of that liqueur wouldn't help with a malaria infection. So. Trace, you said the right thing. Uh, They just didn't know that yet. (laughs) Yeah, that's fair. That's valid. And that makes sense. (laughs) (laughs) Meanwhile, back in France... To quote the New York Times archive, quote, the practice soon spread throughout French society. In 1874, the French consumed 700,000 liters of absinthe per year, a How? number that reportedly rose to 36 million by 1910, a greater amount than the rest of Europe combined. Parisians spoke of the green hour during which people sat in sidewalk cafes sipping absinthe, end quote. So this is really cool. The green hour is the beginning of of what we now call happy hour. I
0: was going to ask if if that kind of translated to what we think of as happy hour.
1: Yeah. So it would be around 5 p.m. after work time. And if you've ever been to Paris or parts of France or seen pictures, cafe culture is a very big deal uh, in, in lots of places in the world, but especially in Paris. And... People would sit outside at these small tables and gather in bistros and bars drinking absinthe. And they said, you know, you could walk down the street and smell the herbs from Mm -hmm. the liquor.
0: How much money would you pay to get to go and experience that?
1: Listen, it's not something I'm always proud of, but the Belle Epoque calls to me Mm -hmm. in a way that a time... So full of syphilis and misogyny and no penicillin should not.
0: Sometimes your spirit and your heart can call to something you know your body can't carry you through.
1: (laughs) Right, right. Like, I I could not. But... The vibes again. Okay, I just want to. I want to say this right off. When we talk about vibes during the Belle Époque, which is a really short time period, mm-hmm. it's about 1870 to 1880, yeah. and it is specifically really happening in Paris, France. That's its center. It's this time post war, where basically a lot of Wealthy or fairly wealthy white boys got to hang around being artists and paint and write poetry and have big existential thoughts in the way that cultures tend to do after wars. Mm -hmm. So the vibes are only happening for these white boys and the bad parts of it of being like a starving artist, which definitely happened and being an alcoholic Mm -hmm. and painting really only sound cool. In the past tense. Right. If you are a woman, if you are a person of color, this is a party that you do not get invited to because of all of the isms. Yes.
0: Yeah. It's the same way that you see people who love vintage fashion talking about how, yeah, I love this aesthetic. I love the look. Vintage. uh, What do they say? Vintage fashion. Vintage
1: vibes, not vintage vintage values. values.
0: Right. And I think it's the same here. I would love to go into... I would love to go into a world that looks like the belly pock but has penicillin and
1: feminism. Penicillin, man. (laughs) (laughs) And you know, why don't we throw in modern toilets while we're at it? And a shower. Yeah, I found out when toilet paper was invented recently and that... I can't... I'm so bummed. Wait, when was it invented? In 1857, a New Yorker named Joseph Gayetty introduced and first patented toilet paper. That's from Cottonelle. That is so much later than I thought. Yeah, and maybe that's why the Belle Époque people were so happy, because they finally had toilet paper. Yeah, enough time had passed and it
0: wasn't even that much of a novelty, so you probably all had it.
1: (laughs) Anyway, let's talk about absinthe. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. This is the good stuff. So drinkers around the country very quickly realized That absinthe had very high alcohol content. 45 to 74% alcohol by volume, or as we say in the US, 90 to 148 proof. That's very strong. Which when people could save money by choosing that drink, you would get a small portion of it and then dilute it with water. Mm. So you got more bang for your buck by literal volume and by alcohol by volume. Yeah. That makes sense. It was not meant to be drunk straight. And as we'll get into it later, it needs sugar. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Or I guess if you're a badass, maybe it doesn't. But we'll get into it. Okay. Right now, Mm -hmm. we're going to just imagine ourselves. Okay. My eyes are closed. In Paris. Mm -hmm. A Paris bar Mm -hmm. during the Belle Epoque. We'll say it's 1875. So there's definitely toilet paper. Okay. Great. The lights are low. Mm -hmm. There's the hum of the avant-garde. It's romantic, artistic, existential, all these conversations born from the violence of the French Revolution. You're drinking absinthe prepared in the French method. Okay. Because it's 1875 and you don't have an alcohol allergy. Right, right. I'm a different me. This is so exciting. Right. And you know the ritual for how absinthe is prepared because you're Parisienne. Mm. So you place a sugar cube on top of your specially slotted spoon and rest that on top of the glass containing your absinthe. Ooh. Then you take ice water and pour or drip it over the sugar cube to mix it through the slots in the spoon with the spirit. And Tracy, you know what you're doing, so you make a perfect drink, which means the result is one part absinthe to three to five parts water and one lovely little sugar cube. Wikipedia explains the effect that this process has, quote, As water dilutes the spirit, those components with poor water solubility, mainly those from anise, fennel, and starnase, come out of solution and cloud the drink. The resulting milky opalescence is called the louche. The release of these dissolved essences coincides with a perfuming of herbal aromas and flavors that, quote, blossom or bloom, and it brings out subtleties that are otherwise muted within the neat spirit, end quote. So... Adding water to it is part of the process, and it's very cool. Uh, if you have green absinthe, it goes from being clear and green to being cloudy and white, and you can pay attention and kind of watch the parts of the herbs fall out of solution.
0: That is that is really cool, and I would love to come and hang out with you and watch someone who enjoys absinthe do that. I, I both could not consume it, and also... I don't think my palate is refined enough that I can be like, oh, now I'm tasting
1: these herbs and then these herbs and then these I've herbs. I've watched you cook, so I know that you could if you wanted to. Not that you would, but you could.
0: I could probably fake my way through it. It's like what people say, like, this coffee has a chocolate and hazelnut taste. I'm like, And this one tastes like watermelon and papaya. And I'm like, they are both lovely coffees that I will drink. But I'm I'm not that refined, you know? Mm. I know people who can tell the difference and who can taste it, but, you know, I stand by my mantra of I love coffee and I'll take whatever (laughs) one you hand me. I'm not going to be picky about it.
1: I love that. I am very picky. (laughs) (laughs) So this is really a ritual around absinthe. It feels almost like a magic spell. And that's kind of tied to this idea of the green fairy. It feels very special. You're not just pouring it into a cup Mm -hmm. and drinking it. And what's more, a lot of bars and bistros adopted absinthe fountains. Usually they look like large glass globes that are on top of a high metal stand. And they'll have two to six spigots. And in this way, drinkers could put their glass with the spoon and the sugar underneath and slowly drip water into their drink mm. moreover at one of these bars a wealthy person might share a fountain with someone from the lower class that they would not otherwise meet and that started contributing to the blending of people from various social strata within paris Ooh, that's so interesting and all of the accoutrement for the drink the spoon the fountain all of that they're called Absintheana.
0: okay third ttrbg character name
1: A quick note, if someone is serving absinthe in, quote, the bohemian style or on fire, it may be to cover up inferior quality. Mm, This is a fairly modern invention that produces a stronger drink. One lights an alcohol-soaked sugar cube on fire, and then they drop it into the absinthe, which also lights on fire, and then the addition of water puts it out and a longer burn time is called cooking the absinthe it's a whole thing Mm. it's not considered the right way to do it but it's a really good trick because if absinthe is not properly made it will not louche when you mix sugar with it oh so the fire distracts from that it's flashy Mm. it's fun and you can say that it affected the louche uh, it may have been developed as a technique in check bars because they were known to carry absinthe bitters, which is a fundamentally different drink than absinthe. It's not going to behave in mm-hmm. the same way. Uh, or it could just be a modern gimmick to sell people shots. The other big thing that I've heard of is absinthe rinses. Oh, yeah, that's huge in cocktails. It's. I always think it sounds cooler than it is. I mean, all you're getting is the licorice flavor. You're right. It's a punishment. Yeah.
0: For those who don't like licorice, it's like, what are you getting? You're not getting any of the, the fun things, everything, everything fun you just described about absinthe. You're not
1: getting. I can feel Kaylee screaming right now.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I, we're probably, as she's listening to this both getting texts blowing up our phones, explaining why we're wrong.
1: So the more popular absinthe became during the Belle Epoque, the more distilleries, the lower the cost. Mm. Companies started creating fraudulent absinthe. And to recreate the effect of louching, they would add antimony trichloride, which is also a poison.
0: Yeah, not good for you. That's for sure.
1: At the same time that this was happening, there was an infestation of grape phylloxera. Insects destroyed over two-thirds of the vineyards in Europe. Oh, my God. This decimated the wine industry and opened the door for absinthe to become France's most popular drink. Mm. So the wine lobbyists got big mad. Oh. And they began to warn the French government of the quote dangers of the drink, despite the fact that on its face, absinthe is not more dangerous than any other strong liquor. Mm-hmm. Then the useful phrase absinthism was born. And it is considered different than classic alcoholism at the time it's this is a a whole phrase that is importantly distinct it's worse you know we're finger Uh wagging, yeah because it brought with it hyper excitability and hallucinations in reader's digest a brief history of absinthe they say quote doctors even claimed that absinthism was a hereditary disease that could be passed on to the drinker's children so this means not only are people getting rowdy like, with alcohol. They're energetic Mm. about it. They're not tired and sleepy. Not only that, they're hallucinating. And not only that, what about the children? This is, like, the perfect cocktail to scare wealthy politicians. It's like they played morality bingo. Oh my god, Tracy, you're brilliant. That is the perfect way to say it. (laughs) That is a... Yes. Chef's kiss, you are so right. And... Kind of overshadowing all of this, and in different parts playing bigger roles, temperance. At the beginning, temperance is right around the corner. Through parts of it, temperance is just in the game. So by now, the drink that was once only accessible to middle and upper class folks had made its way down to the masses. Absinthe was considered fashionable, but also a drink for the poor— Because of all those distilleries, all of that lowering of cost Mm, mm -hmm. and the fact that you got so much drunkenness bang for your buck and a Rolodex of famous artists are known to not only have drunk absinthe, but loved it and talked about it a lot. Mm -hmm. As I mentioned earlier, painter Toulouse-Lautrec was famous for enjoying the Green Fairy, Pablo Picasso, playwright Alfred Jerry. Absinthe is given quite a lot of credit for the loss of Van Gogh's ear in some stories. Mm Hmm, I don't think I've heard that last one. Me either, but of course, you know, it's right there for the picking. Mm -hmm. We do know that Van Gogh drank absinthe, so it's like a Mm -hmm. a little, like another bingo game, a Connect Four situation. Right. (laughs) Oscar Wilde said of drinking the green spirit, quote, after the first glass of absinthe, you see things as you wish they were. After the second, you see them as they are not. Finally, you see things as they really are, and that is the most horrible thing in the world.
0: Listen, I love me an Oscar Wilde quote. I think that man- Well, I
1: have another for you. Ah, oh,
0: great, give it to me. That man wax poetic like no one else.
1: A glass of absinthe is as poetical as anything in the world. What difference is there between a glass of absinthe and a sunset? Paul Gauguin said, I sit at my door sipping absinthe and I enjoy every day without a care in the world. Can't relate, Gauguin. That sounds like wishful thinking. (laughs) (laughs) Same reaction, you and I. Different, different (laughs) words. (laughs) Ernest Hemingway said, opaque, bitter, tongue-numbing, brain-warming, stomach-warming, idea-changing, liquid alchemy. It's supposed to rot your brain out, but I don't believe it. It only changes the ideas.
0: Okay, I love the difference between Oscar Wilde, who's like, it's like a sunset, and you see things this way and this way, and Hemingway, like, yeah, it's a man's drink, it's opaque, it's bitter, it's numbing, it's brainwarming. It makes you think good. <laughs> Listen, I-, I like Hemingway. Hemingway's fine. I enjoy Hemingway. Give me an Oscar Wilde any time anytime of day.
1: You know what I'm saying? <laughs> I, I do like them in comparison. I hadn't really thought of that way. Just, they had
0: such different philosophies on life. It's just funny to see the two different quotes about the same topic. Yeah.
1: Yeah. All those dudes were like, okay, we're doing the same thing. Let's all pick a different brand. Uh, I'm going to be tough guy. Yeah. Uh, who wants to do soft boy? <laughs> uh, there's actually a story about Rimbaud, who was a poet getting killed by his lover, who was drunk on absinthe, which is so big, not true, oh. uh, <laughs> but does involve, again, homophobia into the story. Mm. So one of my favorite stories appeared in that fantastic science history article by Jesse Hicks. Quote, in 1859, Edouard Manet painted The Absinthe Drinker, a realistic portrait of a street bum clad in rags and wearing a gnarled top hat. His left foot thrust forward in defiant insouciance. Next to him sits an emerald glass. Manet's painting was rejected from the year's Salon of Paris. It caused his mentor, Thomas Couture, to shake his head. My poor friend, you are the absinthe drinker. It is you who have lost your moral faculty. Manet had dared to portray absinthe intoxication realistically. Indeed, mm. his painting lent its subject an insolent grandeur. His new mentor, poet Charles Baudelaire, had declared, quote, one must be drunk always with wine, poetry, or with virtue, your choice, but intoxicate yourself. Oh, I like that quote. The absintheurs idealized intoxication. Polite society did not, end quote. Absintheurs. The absintheurs, it's so good. Yeah, there are there are fun words coming out of this episode.
0: And I'm learning new ones. Did not know what insouciance meant until today. Actually, honestly, still couldn't tell you.
1: Lighthearted, unconcerned, nonchalance.
0: Oh.
1: Wow, you really took
0: a fifty cent word for what like a ten cent word could have done.
1: It was a quote. <laughs> oh, not you! I'm
0: I'm talking about um. Who wrote I was that? Like, Tracy, Jesse Hicks? don't call me
1: out like that. No,
0: no, no. no. J- listen, Jesse Hicks, great work. I'm just saying. You know what? Actually, thank you, because now I learned a new word. I'm taking it all back. I'm coming. I've turned one eighty on this. Tracy's just saying that because she didn't want to learn a new thing today. I I had a, <laughs> I was very clear
1: <laughs> when we started. <laughs> that's, a good, that's a good point. Thank you. So, and now we're getting into my. My spicy favorites. It became common for bar goers to order, quote, a ticket to get their drink, meaning a ticket to Carrington, the famous asylum just outside the city. That is because people believed that absinthe caused madness and Mm. that you could and would be sent to an asylum for drinking too much of it.
0: That's so interesting that people genuinely believed it could make you go mad and still were so crazy for it.
1: It's, again, it's all vibes. It's a bunch of emo boys being like, I'm putting in my mouth a cigarette and not giving it the power to kill me, like that Fulton oh, yeah, Stars yeah. thing. <laughs> yeah. And absinthists was the term for people who went mad mm-hmm. from absinthe, which is another good word.
0: I'm impressed with how well you can say all of these words.
1: I practiced with absinthists. And you're nailing it every time. Thank you so much. (laughs) The most systematic study of the effects of absinthe occurred at France's main asylum, the Saint Anne. And this is after a man named Valentin Magnin was appointed physician and chief in
0: 1867.
1: Mm. Magnin, another good name, Valentin Magnin. Yeah, that is good. That is good. That's what I think that's our fourth TTRPG name. I like it. It sounds villainous. Mm, mm -hmm. Although I would I'm thrown
0: off by Valentin instead of Valentine, but I like it.
1: Valentine Magnin. Right. Valentine Magnin's a villain. I'm sure it's Valentine Magna or something like. Okay, see, now I like it better like that.
0: I can't do, as we know on this podcast, French and French accents. They just it's something my brain can't click with. So hearing it, I'm like, oh beautiful
1: I've really committed for this one to just being a person with an American accent. I am a, I am an yeah. American yeah uh, I'm sorry for my French. <laughs> Magnan was Magnon. Magnan Magnon Magna was of a growing group, especially made up of public officials who at the time believed in a quote French race that was under the threat of degeneration. Of course. Which, everyone, that is eugenics. Yeah. There was an increased... Actually, Tracy, mark down a bingo dot every time you recognize something that feels familiar from today. Ooh, okay. All right. There was an increased rate of diagnosed insanity, probably due to better diagnostic techniques. Not an increase in people who suffered from mental health issues at the time although the other reason could be the increased industrialization which actually has markedly put a strain on the social consciousness Mm -hmm. due to an increase in education for women combined with the higher living standards birth rates were also on the decline so you'll recognize a bunch of this reflected in the white nationalism happening in america today yeah i don't like that mostly in the fact that
0: it's also still happening today Mm -hmm. not it's not great it's like the rallying cry of white nationalists a lot of the stuff you just mentioned
1: yeah what if they breed us out is kind of the fundamental idea behind white nationalism or one of them. I should say, only one of the fundamental ideas. The, the idea
0: of, hey, where I've heard people say, like, white people are becoming a minority. And my response is always, and are you worried that minorities won't be treated well? Get em, Tracy. <laughs> <laughs> what else are you trying to tell me? You're scared you're going to become a minority? What makes you scared of that? That you're.
1: Are you afraid of walking into a room and not seeing anyone else who looks like you? Is that intimidating? Do you think you won't be treated well? Why do you think that? It's the best game.
0: Yeah. Is there maybe a history of oppression that you're seeing and you're afraid might reflect on you, but you've never had to actually think about because you've never experienced that kind of oppression? That was crisp, Tracy. That was... mm. Thank you. I I do have these conversations in real life.
1: Not a one and done conversation, unfortunately, in my existence. It never is. Yeah. It's never a one and done personal conversation, even when you're trying to be on the right side of it. So... It's never done Mm -hmm. in an effort to prove that absinthism is distinctly different from alcoholism. Like we talked about in 1869, Magnin published the results of an experiment. So he put one guinea pig in a glass case with a dish of pure alcohol and then another guinea pig, a rabbit and a cat, each in their own cases with a dish of wormwood oil. The animals that inhaled the wormwood vapors became excited and then fell into seizures, and the guinea pig that inhaled the alcohol vapors just got drunk. From his series of experiments, he recommended a full ban on absinthe. He claimed chronic drinkers, absinthists, suffered amnesia, violent fits, and seizures. He really stacked the study in that one direction. You only have yeah. one chance to see how
0: one guinea pig reacts. I you- think he,
1: I know, I really think he did a couple. I just think that they were all like that. Mm. And poisoning a guinea pig is a lot easier than poisoning a human when you only have a dish of a chemical to do it with. Not to mention, a whole dish of wormwood oil is not what's happening Right. in even an entire bottle of absinthe. It's almost like the study was just to prove his point and not for real science. He's had a vendetta against guinea pigs. But not every contemporary of Magnin agreed with his findings. People saw through and published articles about the flaws in his methods and the incredible mental leap it takes to just not consider classic alcoholism. Mm-hmm. The UK said absolutely not to everything he was saying and they (laughs) never really seemed particularly concerned about the drink over there coming off of defeat in the franco-prussian war in 1871 people were incredibly (laughs) concerned not only with quote the poisoning of the population but also having babies that would then grow up to be the next round of soldiers if these people aren't having babies we don't have bodies It was rumored that Absinthe sterilized men and acted as an abortion drug. Mmm. Add another thing to your bingo card. Yeah, that's, um, God, a conversation we're still having in
0: general in America today. So this is not a fun bingo game. I want to go back to the one where we named TTRPG characters.
1: I have at least one more okay name. I think I might have maxed out on good ones, though. I'm sorry. (laughs) It's okay. I'll take one more. Thanks. So all of this bad press surrounding absinthe that we can acknowledge a lot of which was done in bad faith oh, Although absolutely. a lot of it was people also buying it this coincided with the temperance movement Eventually absinthe was banned in the Republic of Congo in 1898, Belgium in 1905, Switzerland in 1907, and then the US in 1912. Mm. In France, the Minister of the Interior banned the sale of absinthe as an emergency measure on August 16th in 1914. But there was so much stock of absinthe in warehouses all around the country that folks just kept drinking it. <laughs> Like, okay, dude, bet. Yeah. But with World War One around the corner, the winemaking associations breathing down their necks, the Temperance League, the pressure from conservative newspapers, the president of France banned it in January of 1915. And then finally, Italy joined in 1932. Pernod, our guy from the beginning, our mm-hmm. first distillery maker, continued to produce absinthe legally in Spain until the 1960s. And it was popular and entirely legal in the Czech Republic throughout. There was also a little bootlegging industry in Switzerland. Mm, nice. It wouldn't be until... Actually, Tracy, You do you want to guess when it was allowed in the European Union again? When they would legalize it? There would continue to be strict regulations. Ooh, okay. It was banned in... The early 1910s. Yeah, early
0: 1910s through the 30s. He was selling it in Spain through the 60s. I'm going to guess, um, 65. 1988.
1: Oh my god! I thought this drink was, like, all over the world all the time. Hold on, buckle up, buttercup, I have another one. When do you think it was legalized in France? Like, fully. Because France really held out, and they made people call it a wormwood-based spirit for a really long time. And the prohibition was not lifted until... Guess. Um, 2001. Two thousand and eleven. Oh my god. The US? Two thousand and seven.
0: I am genuinely so shocked because like we were just like alive and walking around and doing things when this was happening. And like I thought absinthe was just always a thing. Like I had watched Moulin Rouge when absinthe was still illegal in the US.
1: Yes. Wild.
0: It's insane. And that that blew my mind. That was insane. You're the best
1: audience ever. Thank you for being as shocked as I was Uh, when I was doing this
0: research. Thank you for bringing these unbelievable facts to me. I, given six more guesses, wouldn't have gotten close.
1: I would never. I would never. But I thought that I kind of remembered it becoming legalized in the US. But then I thought like, you know, I was a kid. So maybe I just wasn't understanding Mm -hmm. something about it when I was trying to recall. But no, we... Do you want to talk about murder? Yeah, always. Because I withheld possibly one of the most intriguing pieces of the puzzle that makes up absence fall from grace. And that is a lot of publicized murder.
0: You sly little fox, you. You were saving it. Hook me in at the end. Although, hook me in. I've been highly invested this whole time. (laughs) Tracy, Mm -hmm. do you know
1: what the Twinkie defense is?
0: No, I genuinely have no idea what that
1: means. Really? Yeah. Oh, I love teaching people about this. Thank you so much. Um,
0: <laughs> You're welcome. For it. You know what? I will continue to not know things for you. We established at the start of this episode, I am unwilling to learn or take in information. So happy to do that for you.
1: That's, that's, the, <laughs> that's why we switch off. Mm-hmm. To quote the Legal Information Institute, the term originated from the 1979 trial of Dan White, a San Francisco politician who was charged with first-degree murder. A testifying psychiatrist pointed out that White's consumption of sugary foods, such as Twinkies, could lead to diminished capacity. Using this testimony, White's lawyer was successfully able to persuade the jury that White lacked the premeditation and deliberation elements necessary to establish first-degree murder. As a result, White was ultimately convicted of a lighter offense of involuntary manslaughter. So he ate so many
0: sugary foods that he wasn't smart enough to premeditate murder.
1: That is the Twinkie Defense. And it worked. That is the Twinkie Defense. <laughs> I
0: mean it it what a precedent to set, huh?
1: Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's he wild. Was a, He was a white guy in San Francisco who was a politician. Yeah, that defense would not have gotten off the ground for any other demographic. Well, yeah, at all. So the Twinkie defense is exactly what happened to Absinthe. Mm. A quick content warning, we're going to discuss murder that involved the death of multiple children. Additionally, there is mention of suicide. Uh, We're not going to get graphic, but if that is not your jam, please just pop forward a smidgen and rejoin us in a few so it's late august in 1905 in the small village of commongy switzerland i hope that's right a french-speaking laborer has just murdered his wife two-year-old daughter and new baby over their coffins which are standing open to the air in the village he was said to wail Please tell me I haven't done this. I loved my family and children so much. But his actions the previous day are in direct conflict with that. Beginning near dawn the previous morning, he started with a shot of absinthe and water. Then another. Then six glasses of wine at lunch. Then another before leaving work. Then a stop at a cafe for some coffee and brandy. Then a liter of wine at home. That is so much. Yes, supposedly his wife was upset with his behavior and called him quote lazy he told her to be quiet apparently she said make me he took the loaded rifle off of their wall shot her in the head then shot his daughter rose when she came in to investigate then Mm. went upstairs to the baby's crib and shot blanche their youngest daughter during the February trial, Lanfray's lawyers twinkied him using the poorly defined affliction of, quote, absinthe madness to account for his behavior. Albert Mahaim, a leading Swiss psychiatrist, examined the man and said absinthe accounts for, quote, the ferociousness of temper and blind rages that made him shoot his wife for nothing and his two poor children whom he loved. The prosecution pointed out that absinthe was only a small amount of the alcohol he consumed Mm -hmm. that day, being two glasses compared to what we're measuring in liters for Mm -hmm. one. The trial lasted only one day. He was found guilty on four counts of murder because autopsy showed that his wife was pregnant with their son at the time. Ooh. He hanged himself in prison three days later. The press dubbed this crime the absinthe murder <gasps> of course they did of course it's a good name that's the thing it it's sensational papers right la gazette de la la a french language swiss newspaper said of absinthe quote it is the premier cause of bloodthirsty crime in this century i
0: mean points for drama but t- taking away points for kind of inaccuracy
1: oh yeah Reader's Digest says that Komunji's mayor publicly declared absinthe is, quote, the principal cause of a series of bloody crimes in our country. So there was a petition Mm -hmm. to outlaw absinthe, and 82,000 signatures were acquired.
0: Wow. And that's before the internet, when you can just email it to a bunch of people.
1: Exactly. And absinthe had, quote, unquote, caused another murder that was happening in switzerland at the same time geneva was was rocking on with her own terrible story and bad press newspapers loved it so much so they benefited from this campaign to like banish the green fairy Mm -hmm. in earlier 1879 harper's weekly article warned of the dangers that now seemed like they were proven by Mm. these murders quote many deaths are directly traceable to the excessive use of absinthe the encroachments of this habit are scarcely perceptible a regular absinthe drinker seldom perceives that he is dominated by its baleful influence until it is too late all of the sudden he breaks down his nervous system is destroyed his brain is inoperative his will is paralyzed he is a mere wreck. There is no hope of his recovery. In 1907, the newspaper had progressed to calling it the Green Curse of France. I mean, once again,
0: points for drama, but I'm taking away points for inaccuracy.
1: This reminds me of, I don't know, the Hatfields and McCoys and so many of the other stories we've covered where news plays such a big role Mm. in the politics of it. This more than many
0: we've covered, aside from potentially, like, aqua getting giving, like, big news coverage.
1: Mm, that's a good point. Is it always poison and news? <sighs> and murder. Poison sex and murder. So, Trace, this is for you an illustration of wormwood. Oh,
0: it is! It's a botanical
1: illustration, my favorite. Okay,
0: so this shows a bunch of different parts of the plant. In the center, you have a sprig going upwards, and it is, you know, a central stalk with leaves kind of coming off of it they're in a uh, vaguely triangle shape but then what it also does is it shows you the pods and the different kind of stages of growth of them and it it culminates in a sort of fan-like looking pod at the top left corner of the image it's colorful um the leaves are all green and then all of the seeds or pods are in this uh, bright yellow
1: yeah it is awfully pretty if i saw it i might be inclined to interact with it in nature Like pick it or smell it or...
0: Yeah, because it's got these cool little pods hanging off of it, off of the little stems. Like, I'd want to know what's going on.
1: So this is the herb that, when soaked in alcohol, is put into absinthe and is causing all of the drama. Mm Mm-hmm. Am I the drama? (laughs) Is it me? Am I the drama? Yes, Wormwood, you are.
0: It's Wormwood. It's not the people at all.
1: (laughs) No. So everyone's favorite question. We're back to it. Does absinthe really make you hallucinate? No. No. Big no, actually. There was counterfeit absinthe that was poison that was on the market at the time. Some of it used, quote, industrial strength alcohol Oof. Uh, because it, no one cared. There was no regulation. Mm-hmm. And many of the artists who famously drank absinthe were also experimenting with a variety of drugs. So there were a lot of things happening that could make you think that someone was hallucinating because of absinthe. Mm. It just wasn't absinthe. <laughs> it was just
0: there. Yeah. It's just a spirit, right? It's just an alcohol like any other mm-hmm. alcohol. hmm mm.
1: So the main ingredient in Wormwood that is causing all of this drama is called thujone. That's the ingredient that can be toxic in large doses. In 1975, researchers noted similar effects between THC and thujone mm. and thought to compare them. They have a similar molecular geometry, they can be similarly metabolized by humans, and they're both terpenoids.
0: Okay, so we are getting into the vein of like potentially wormwood at least could have some interesting mental
1: effects. That's true. It could be it could be interesting, but we're not in hallucination. No. Even so, Thujone doesn't stimulate the same biological response in humans that Uh THC does. The effect is not the same. In extremely high doses, Thujone can cause spasms and convulsions, which is much easier to prove with a guinea pig uh, than a human. Nicholas Hines wrote for Thrillist, quote, Tests on pre-prohibition absinthe found that most of the old spirits also lacked enough Thujone to negatively impact someone's health. It's understood today that the health problems were due to overconsumption of high alcohol spirit, not because of wormwood and thujone. A wormwood solution requires 50% alcohol by volume. So it has always been ethanol that is the problem. Yeah. Yeah.
0: That sounds like it. I mean, when you can light something on fire because it's got so much alcohol in it, I don't think you can blame the other ingredients.
1: It's not about what it is it's about the dose because mm-hmm. thujone can be bad for people mm-hmm. but you would die from alcohol poisoning so long before you got to even within a whisper right of this situation <laughs> <laughs> yep so we haven't really touched on the marketing of absinthe and how tied it is to the green fairy tracy i brought you art <gasps> This is what I think
0: of when I think of absinthe. Um, So this is this gorgeous Art Nouveau print. So for those who don't know, um, Art Nouveau is a style that's very famous for um, lots of arches and swirls. And a a typical, you know, there's a woman in the center with flowers and arches and and swirls around her. And it's very vintage. And if you know who Alphonse Mucha is, he was like the king of Art Nouveau. And so this is a woman sitting, profile, head tilted, looking towards the viewer, holding up a glass of absinthe against a green background and she's in a green gown with bright yellow hair in a very um mid 1800s hairstyle like it's very like 1830s flamboyance mm. um and just decorative plants all around it and it has a bunch of things in French uh that I don't know how to translate
1: it's an advertisement it's the brand and it's how much it costs ooh and also where it's distilled i believe if i can read that tiny font correctly <laughs> it's it's a poster it it's so romantic having mm-hmm. ads look like this i think that's part of the reason why we like it so much today
0: absolutely because we have these it we have these beautiful ads that you you would hang this on your like i would hang this on my wall as an art print oh, it's and beautiful. it's an ad i mean it reminds me of jc Lyndecker and the way that he also did these beautiful pieces of art that were also ads that you would also potentially hang on your wall
1: so because we have this artistic community participating in the marketing of absinthe, but also participating in the mythos of absinthe, mm-hmm. how it's getting this reputation for inspiring artists and it's linked to madness and insanity. But when madness and insanity were also romantic. Right. When it's when it's fun and palatable and like not that dangerous to to be only spending your money on alcohol mm-hmm. because, you know, it's all safe. Right. And I think a lot of times probably for some people it really wasn't, but that's not what we're being sold. Mm-hmm. No, you're being sold a fantasy. Here is another piece about the fantasy. It's Albert Meignan's Green Muse. It's from 1895. And Wikipedia described it as a poet succumbs to the green fairy. This to me is like quintessential narrative of absinthe.
0: Yeah, this painting is beautiful. This looks like it's probably oil, much more realistic than the last one. And it's a poet with his hand dramatically up to his face and out in front of him as though he's kind of shocked it looks like he just dropped a bottle of absinthe on the ground you can see the broken bottle Mm -hmm. um very much like we just said that it's romanticizing madness and insanity and so above him with her hands clutched on his forehead is a floating white woman with kind of strawberry blonde reddish hair in a green flowing gown that wisps she actually doesn't seem to really have legs she kind of just wisps around him She's got um,
1: little feet actually hidden. It oh, is a free feet pick.
0: It is a free feet pick. It's, okay, just below the wisp of what looks like her movements. she had got two little little feet. The big thing here, though, is she is not making a nice face. She looks mad. And actually, she the word succubus comes to mind, maybe because I saw the word mm-hmm, succumbs mm-hmm. to Green Fairy. But it, it looks like she is stealing from him. Like, she is the one, you know, if, if this were a pleasant face and a pleasant scene, she might be implanting ideas in his brain. But in this one, it looks like she's stealing dealing him like who he is.
1: Yeah, and he's in a room that like to us I think that balcony says like ooh well appointed, but I don't think at the time that's what that meant. Mm-hmm. You're looking out on a balcony over Paris, there's papers everywhere, that like manic artist energy. Mm-hmm. The the coal fire is open and low. It it just has this romantic unwellness to it.
0: Yeah, you know those floorboards creak and are warped.
1: Oh, a hundred percent. But they creak out the lyrics of a song. You know, Oh, it's melancholic, of course. <laughs> um, num, 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 num. I love it. <laughs> okay, one last image because this, to me, is so fun. This, and you'll have to forgive me for repeating myself, but it, the green fairy, is inextricable from the idea of the muse. Yes. She is a muse. And that's part of this hallucination ideas being implanted in your mind by absinthe. It's all very alchemical and magical and mm-hmm. sexy ladies and like men who were in their feelings. Mm-hmm. So, this is The Absinthe Drinker by Victor Oliva. Uh, he lived from 1861 to 1928. I don't know when this was painted, but it's right in the pocket.
0: I'd say us. this looks early. Late 1800s, early 1900s, uh, potentially by the, the style of hair on the green fairy, maybe 19-teens-ish.
1: That's kind of what I was thinking, especially by the way that her body is shaped and what people were romanticizing for women's bodies. Yeah. What I find really interesting off the bat with this photo um, is for people who aren't
0: aware of both Rowan's art style and her mom's art style, this actually really makes me think of the way that both of you paint. Oh, that's so funny. <laughs> It's the, um, specifically the use of color and the use of, of it, it's it's got this style that is a love child, and I'm sure art people like are shouting at me, but it feels like the love child of impressionist with realism, like it is, there are strong blocks of strokes of color, things aren't perfectly blended, um, but it's all very intentional. So what we're looking at is a table with a man, a blonde man with a goatee. His hat is on the table. There's there's papers on it. And he's sitting with his head in his hands, looking forward and in front of him, leaning kind of suggestively on the table, we see the ghostly figure of a green fairy. She's all green completely. He's at a cafe or some kind of restaurant and in the background it looks to be like a kind of hunched over older maybe waiter is about to walk up to him.
1: Yeah, I was thinking waiter or possibly like theater goer who's a little bit more un done at the end of a night like i couldn't i was putting a couple different narratives on it. it
0: there yeah there definitely could be a bunch um and the main man in the photo the absinthe drinker looks uh, once again like very unhappy he seems stressed it's not like he's inspired and blown away by this muse experience he he seems um dragged down and drawn
1: mm. she also has no feet <laughs> yes
0: <laughs> she she also has no feet um, she sort of just stops existing just, just below uh, her knee
1: but you did say it this is post impressionist this whole period there's no more like flowers in Giverny we're not doing all those pastels we're in the city and a big reason for Paris and the metropolis of it capturing people's attention is electricity mm. And gas lamps, because, you know, n- not everything is modernized all at once. Right. But Paris was on the forefront of this. As of 1870, Paris contained 20,766 street lamps. And it had, for a long time, been an initiative of the city to illuminate the street, to eliminate crime. There was a period mm. before street lamps where they would ask people to put candles in their windows and light them for the night so that the police could see to catch criminals that makes sense after the international exhibition of electricity paris was considered the electricity capital of the world they were all about light there's a phrase that i love from american historian craig koslovsky in 2011 he coined the term nocturnalization Quote, the expansion of social and economic activity into the night and the subsequent spread of illumination. Oh, if that's not up your alley, I don't know what is. And it's amazing. So it's in the art that is coming from this time, knowing the artists who are making it and their experience, you can see why night culture has this mythos around it. Mm-hmm. It it truly, this the way that these are idealized, the green fairy that they've created, it feels like a larger mythology it is
0: so interesting to get to explore this story because what started as a drink that soldiers kind of had because they had to exploded into this entire culture that for people who don't know anything about alcohol know the green fairy and they know absinthe and they know these images and they could they might not be able to say what it is but they could pick out an art nouveau art print of absinthe and, and recognize it for what it is and it is truly all around the mythos and the culture and the marketing of this one drink.
1: It's compared a lot to weed culture in modern times in that there is a specific culture around Mm -hmm. marijuana. Not that they are inherently similar cultures around each substance. The fact that there is an entire language that exists in the community to communicate about it. Yes. So do you want to hear a story? I do. I want to hear the story you wrote. I'm so excited. I don't
0: know anything about what this is. I You didn't give me any hints. We didn't talk about it. So I'm excited.
1: Listen, it's quintessential Rowan is all I'm going to say. Mm, guard my
0: heart. Is that what I should do?
1: No, no. Oh. Oh, I love that you think that that's quintessential Rowan. Thank you so much.
0: <laughs> this is why I love you because <laughs> that is how I hoped you would take it. <laughs> Thank you. you you're you a goddess among men. I, I adore you. Um, okay, I'm ready for whatever this quintessential Rowan brings.
1: Paris at night looks like a thousand glittering dreams pinned to the sky. They call it the City of Light. Well, of course they do. They must. Tell the world of Our Majesty, our Babylon. But this is not a story of light. It is a tale of what happens in the darkness. When a young man comes to Paris, the first thing he must do before taking a single breath of air is devour a glass of absinthe. This must be offered from the hand of another, such as himself. This is important. It sets the stage, tells the audience what play they've entered. The audience being the body and mind, of course. Get started on the right foot. "'Let immoral drunkenness be the guide of the great poets and painters. "'We shall leave sobriety for the lesser men.' "'Aubert did not have the sound advice I'm giving you, "'so he came like a lamb to the slaughter. "'Look around you, at the men, "'so many crowded together around the fountains, "'laughing and carrying on. "'They huddle like moths to the flame "'and beat back the darkness of night with company.' But look around again. Do you see the lonely men? The ones on the fringes sitting quietly, languidly, blinking into the darkness? Those are the artists, very likely. Or they believe they are. But they are also prey. Do not dine alone if you can help it. And if you cannot, stay always within the light's cast. Imagine, if you will, at that empty table, a tall young man all elbows, eyes like saucers, and hands grasping for everything that comes near, eager, hair like mine, freckles like these. He was new, uninitiated and alone, and began his foray into society by crawling into the cafes. It was the right choice, mind you, simply done the wrong way. Aubert fell into his cup quickly each night. The young country boys never have the tolerance that we do, of course, but even the cheap drunks discover absinthe. The green fairy. There is a ritual. For inspiration. Passed among Parisian artists. The preparation. Spirit. Sugar. Water. Longing. A communion to call the muse forth from the dark recesses of your mind. The alleys bringing with her a sparkling inspiration. She is a bomb to the boredom born of fear. So, Aubert drinks and paints. He lives in a small studio shared with another. It's cold in the winter, drafty as those places always are. Fuel costs money, food costs money, paint costs money, so he compromises, as we all do. I need paint and inspiration to live. We leave the rest to the mortal men. But it is hard to paint hungry, and wanting, and lonely, and cold. So he begins to perform the ritual. At first, the lights are too bright, the space is too crowded. At first, the mixture is wrong, and the intoxication too swift. But he learns we all learn. She appears to him, for the first time, in a cafe about to close. He is the last man slumped in his seat. He would whine for his mother if he possessed the energy. She appears behind him, arms around his shoulders, in the way that the world appears when one wakes up from an all-consuming sleep. She did not exist, and then she does. The green fairy is quick to kiss, caress. But it is nice to wake up to kisses, I think, don't you? Hello, painter, what is your name? He looks up at her, eager to ask the same question. But asking was for hours past and he is too tired and too drunk. The lights behind her haze into sparkles and her green eyes pull him in like winding ivy. Give me your name, she says. What? He is a blur to himself, the world moving just too quickly to catch. Give me your name, handsome. She nearly purrs, running slim, cool fingers across his hot brow. If you give me your name, I will inspire you. He does, without a second thought, no moment of hesitation or wondering, only spirit. Sugar, water, and longing. He paints like he has never painted before. The form's perfection, expression clear, colors rich, light enchanting. He paints so well that people actually want to look at his canvases. And not only to look, critique, discuss, envy. The inspiration is as rich and heady as the absinthe from which it was born, but it is also just as bitter. The magic only lasts so long, he learns. Like sugar, it dissolves itself into the light of morning. And with inspiration comes some success, and so more is needed to fuel the machine that God he hopes he can maintain. So he turns to absinthe again. Among the throngs, among the laughter, she does not appear, never. Though she could, she ought to. She'd have the eyes of every desperate man while they tried crafting lines of poetry around her like a rope. But she is a clever thing, and only comes to men who are alone. So, Aubert spends his nights sulking in cafe corners, dripping away in misery and hunger the pounding headache that bows his head a new constant. She comes. She always does. The green fairy waits until Aubert has cried for her, dried his tears and cried again, until he is a sniveling, groveling thing loosened with liquor and poured out into the street. The ritual is as impoverished as the practitioner. Cheap spirit... Sweet words, bitter tears, and agony. <sighs> Aubert Fouet Moreau, she shimmers. My love, he sloshes. She giggles and pulls him to her with lithe arms. Please, please, I am lost. I do not know what to paint. It is flat. I am lonely, my love. Inspire me, please. Aubert, Fouet Moreau. He likes the way her mouth moves around his name. Give me some of your sanity, and I will inspire you. So he does. And then he does again, and again. "'He gives and he gives until he is a drunk, a wretch, a madman. "'There is a violence born of shattered sanity. "'He forgets his name, truly he does. "'Aubert could not speak it if anyone asked. "'No matter. "'No one asks for the name of a man in the gutter. "'He calls to her again, unable to perform the ritual.' It slips further out of reach each time. No absinthe now. No sweetness. No dilution. Aubert Fouet Moreau, you call with nothing to give me, my love. Her fairy wings flutter out behind her, curving like a cat stretching in the sun. He Begs for her to restore him. His words are loose, attached only tenuously with a new terror. He begs for his life, his art, his name. He has sold too much for too little. My love. She crouches down and leans close to him, her diaphanous gown as delicate as petals, her skin summer warm on his winter cold. Bring me another man, another name. And I will give you yours back. She kisses him, like that very first sip. What? Don't laugh. This is serious stuff. It sounds like children's tales. But I tell you now so you will know the truth. The green fairy is real. No postered angel. I'm doing you a favor. Someone needs to save you from yourself. Or... Perhaps I've hung the forbidden fruit from the lowest bough. I see. You're interested, and now you will be led by your own foolishness right into the grasp of the green fairy. (sighs) Before I begin again, would you like another drink? Sorry, I didn't catch your name.
0: Okay, I see exactly what you mean. It's so quintessential Rowan, and I love it. (laughs) beautiful mix of uh, a narrative story with just poetry that really felt, and I know you'll take this as the compliment I mean it to be, like the love song of J. Alfred Rock.
1: <gasps> oh, y'all, that's a really high stakes compliment from Trace. <laughs> Thank you.
0: Ooh. It was beautiful. The way it, the story wove itself and like poetry throughout. Oh my god, I could listen to that on repeat. That was beautiful.
1: Thank you. Yeah, I really wanted to Indulge in this style born of this time period, like everyone indulging in themselves and thinking they're so romantic and clever. Mm-hmm. And also, at the recommendation of our listeners, I have been reading The Invisible Life of Addie LaRue by V.E. Schwab, which is about a French woman and takes place a lot during this time and involves selling things to higher powers. Mm. And I didn't realize how how that setting is so perfect for that book because there is this notion in everything that I read of like higher powers like muses being available for purchase. Yeah. But not understanding that you are the product.
0: Ooh. Ooh, what an interesting way to put it. Uh,
1: it feels a lot like social media now.
0: <laughs> mm, yes. I think that's why that struck a chord with me.
1: Yeah. So that's – that's absinthe
0: (laughs) yes Oh man what a good episode you did such a good job and it was so fun to get to finally actually cover absinthe something we've talked about a lot
1: yeah we've talked about it so often that it didn't even make it onto the list for a long time because we've talked about it so often we talk about art from this time period a lot though because we both like it Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. (laughs) yeah so tell me something good
0: Ooh, Okay. All right. My something good um, is that we recently had a Friendsgiving with all of our friends. And um, one, that was just lovely, like to get together in person and everyone brought food. But the other thing is, um, and I haven't really talked about this on the pod, I've been having some minor health stuff, you know, nothing serious. But as part of it, I had to go on this insane elimination diet to try and figure out like what's causing inflammation. My sweet friend, Kevin, who listens to this podcast. So Kevin, thank you when you hear this made stuffing like made a whole thing of stuffing that was tracy safe just, mm. just so that i could have stuffing for our friendsgiving
1: and it was Food so nice because
0: the best truly he had to work with like gluten-free bread no pepper no celery like no other spices and it was kevin it was really good i had it the next day too it was delicious so
1: oh you're doing fodmap
0: yeah a version of it basically it's based on I... my blood test results so it's like what specifically causes me to be inflamed
1: I really hope gluten is not the thing because you deserve bread. I'm sorry.
0: Unfortunately, gluten was one of those things that I'm pretty reactive to.
1: After all of this time of me being gluten free and Mm -hmm. you being like, that sucks so much for Uh you. I totally understand. And now you're stuck here with me. Yeah. I think I have more flexibility
0: than you do. But I am definitely like, I will say after that Friendsgiving when I caved and had a bunch of things I shouldn't have, I felt awful. It was worth it, but I felt awful. Uh, fortunately, I can have dairy, so cheese is safe for me. Good,
1: good. that yes. makes me so happy. Yes, I'm too. so sorry about the gluten thing. You know, there's great gluten free alternatives. Um I, I wanna say I got you, but you're still more cookie than me. So like, yeah. maybe you got me now. Um, yeah, I'll send you recipes. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I guess with the gluten thing, you and I, no belle époque for us. We could not go back to that time. Too many baguettes. I know. Baguettes, croissants. You know what? The, the truly
0: heartbreaking thing is that pastries are like my favorite thing in the entire world.
1: Croissants is one of the things I've never found an even like sad equivalent for.
0: No, I, well, especially because you can't do dairy on top of it. So croissant is just gluten and dairy layered together.
1: That's mm-hmm. it yeah
0: and it's like if we could replace the gluten like the dough i'm sure i could find a way to you know enough butter you make anything taste good but if you can't do that
1: well it's okay i i promise the gluten-free world is actually way chiller and tastier than everyone expects it to be i'm learning that there's fun
0: alternatives and and this isn't you know the gluten thing is i have to probably forever be very very like Re- resist my desire for gluten, or just know I'm not going to feel good for a while. Um, fortunately, I will slowly be able to start bringing back other foods into my diet. But I'm in the awful phase right now where it's like I can't have anything I want. And so to go to that friend's giving, and then Kevin come in with two dishes and like put one down and be like, "This is the Tracy safe one." That was really sweet. Like, it, it. I've always tried to do that for other people, and it it just didn't occur to me that someone would do that for me. And when it happens, it's like heart melting.
1: You and Kevin and any friend that, like, does that for food stuff is – it's an I love you. Mm-hmm. Like, it is saying, like, I value you. I care about you. I'm willing to put in extra work. Like, even when it's low maintenance, like, mm-hmm. like, Kaylee, who's the best friend in the whole world, always keeps gluten-free crackers in her house because often I'm over there for a really long time and I get snackish. Mm-hmm. So there's just a drawer that I can reach in and get. Crackers, which is like such the best a small, thing. I love you. Yeah, like friends that do things like this are are the best ones. Yeah.
0: <laughs> so I I love. I, it was so sweet. Like I've had um multiple friends now reach out to me. Casey's one of them. My friend Emily, who also listens to the pod. Emily, this was so sweet. Like they, I have a picture of what I can and can't have right now, and they all have saved it to their phones and are specifically sending me recipes or checking. Like Casey checks in on me every day to see how I'm feeling. Um, like all going beans. through all of this kind of chronic health stuff has been awful, but oh my God, it is it eye opening for the amazing people in my life? I mean, you Rowan know more than anyone else. Like I call you every day where I'm like, I'm having these thoughts and these feelings and you've just been amazing for it. And so my something good is, you know, it starts with friends giving and stuffing, but it just expands to like that made me sit down and realize I could cry. I love my friends so much. And the the family I have around me is everything to me and by family i mean my family but also like my family my friends like my people
1: oh yeah family chosen family Mm -hmm. it's so funny that you're saying this also on the podcast because i had this exact conversation of like oh my god i love my friends so much with a friend yesterday Mm -hmm. and then i had it with a different friend earlier this week like everyone right now just seems to be coming out of the woodwork being like My friendships are so good. Like, I didn't know it could be this good. Yeah. And healthy and, like, happy. And I don't know if it's the pandemic, which is still exists for the record, but, like, is over in the fact that we're not all stuck in only our houses. Mm -hmm. Uh But I feel like people are coming out much more eager to say I love you or, like, the things that ought to be said because we all – had to meet some mortality, mm-hmm. um and you and I are smushy people, but it's like, ooh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's the best way of just like,
0: ooh, everyone else is getting smushy, or like I've always been the friend to just like text you at one thirty-two p.m. on a Wednesday and be like, just so you know, I love you so much, and I was thinking about you, and blah blah blah, and so then to kind of get that back from other people in in their own ways is, oh. My heart is full. I love my people. But okay, now I'm going to turn it over to you. It's your turn to tell me something good.
1: My something good is also a friend's thing. Mm -hmm. Uh, Our friend Elise was in town. And so a bunch of us got together a couple times to play For the Queen. Ooh! It's a card-based game. It's from Evil Hat Productions. It is one of my favorite games hands down. Wow. there are like eight cards that teach you how to play. you It's the kind of game you can bring to any group and everyone will know how to play it in less than five minutes. Oh,
0: I love that. That's what I need. You know me. The second you start explaining board game rules to me, I hear TV static and the girl from Ipanema and that's it.
1: Yeah, it's all RPG. It's all story. It's all vibes. And the idea is that you and anyone who's playing, we've played it with 12 people. We've played it with two people. Wow. Um, okay anyone who's playing you're all in a retinue that was chosen by the queen to make a dangerous journey and she chose you all because she knows that you love her Mm. and each card has a question and as you answer it you fill out this story and you are you figure out who you are and why you love the queen like are you the queen's son are you the queen's lover are you the queen's bodyguard? like all of these different roles and the story unfolds and then at the the game ends when you draw a card that says the queen is under attack. Do you defend her? Hmm. And my friends are so insanely brilliant. We The last game we played, I, I played the queen's shadow, her literal shadow. I played Ooh. that could devour other shadows.
0: Ooh, oh, my God. I love that.
1: Sage Ryan played a tailor that could so, like, Clothes onto a automaton, a shadow onto a person. Mm -hmm. Uh, Carlos Cisco played a leviathan. Oh my god! It was buck wild. And oh, Spencer Stark played an automaton. Oh
0: Um, my god! This is insane. First of all, this group—what a fun group to play with. Second of all, what an insane cast of characters
1: it's buck wild um and every time i play it it's different every time i play it it's better i never get tired of it mm. and listen y'all it's like i don't know 10 somewhere between 10 and 20 dollars and it is worth every penny okay say so that name one more time it's called for the queen mm. we do play with a homebrew mechanic though uh in the card game there's cards that are pictures of queens Mm-hmm. Of In different art styles That you're supposed to pull and be like This is the queen, okay, everybody write a story Absolutely not We do mm. not pick what the queen looks like That's malarkey You come up with it as everybody goes oh, around Oh yeah, that's
0: so much more fun
1: Yeah I love that Okay, I want to play that with you sometime, please Oh my god, anytime. You name the bat time and the bat channel And I will be there Yay Um. Yeah Well That's hey did you learn anything new today not a single fact but
0: thank you all for joining us (laughs) and for hopefully learning many new facts and remember that stories grow with the telling
1: so if you like what we do tell a friend or tell a foe and we'll see you soon okay Thank you so much for joining us for the Willing and Fable podcast. This episode was written and produced by Tracy Harrison and Rowan Hall. That's me. Our logo is by Jamie Harrison, and our music is by Taylor Ashe. If you ever want to watch or read what we're reading, head over to willingandfable.com for our show notes and custom merch, or find us at Willing and Fable on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok to join the discussion. We hope you'll rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast using your favorite listening source. And check out Willy and Fable on Patreon, where we have more than a few surprises for you, including custom artwork, stories, and access to our secret Discord channel. And of course, join us next time for another round of original retellings and in-depth research on the history, mystery, and mythology that makes the world so fascinating. have you ever cried to just make a man uncomfortable no because if a guy is yelling at you and frankly he shouldn't be nothing nothing unmans that mother (laughs) like a tear (laughs) that said i will cry by accident also